Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, fu- I mean, feelers. Yeah, that's it. Uh, to episode 124 of the motherfucker. No, 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 no. This is the Feelin' Film podcast. That's right. I apologize. Scorsese movies always do this to me. I'm a sailor. I can't help it. I'll try to keep it under control. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me is my best friend, who I hope is not a rat, Patrick. Hey, everyone. This is week four of Director Battle Month, and our listeners chose to have us discuss Martin Scorsese's best picture winning film, The Departed. Now, as I mentioned, I'm a former sailor, so it is a little bit tough for me to keep my language under control when we are talking about this film. Uh, when I'm quoting it, I want to go full quotes, but I'm not going to do that. So I will do my best to uh, paraphrase this award-winning screenplay as much as I can. Patrick, I'm really excited to get into this film. It is definitely one of my favorites. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. But before we do, I wondered if you had a chance to catch up with anything or if you want to just jump right into our bracket picks. Well, I just a real quick thing. I, uh, I I recently finished a couple more of my summer of anime. I know we're getting close to the end of the summer, although it depends on when people start school and when you consider the summer to be over. I mean, when the fall starts, I guess it's what, September 21st. So by default, I guess I have that much time to finish off. But I'm, I'm trying default. to default. Sorry. Sorry. Default. default, like it has the word fall in default. The awesome. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I, I watched uh, Paprika and I watched The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Both were really, really enjoyable. And I'm looking forward to finishing out. I think I've got about four more left to go. And if I'm feeling so inclined, I actually have a bonus or an epilogue, uh, an epilogue film that I've got in the work at some point. It'll be if I can finish these last three. But the other movie that I, I watched, uh, this is one that I'd seen before. My wife and I were thumbing through our Amazon library and trying to find something that we both enjoy, which is, it's difficult just because she and I have different tastes when it comes to the types of movies that, that we enjoy. And we ran across the 1984 baseball film, The Natural, which we have not seen in a long time. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it this time around. I hope it comes on our schedule at some point so we can talk about it more in depth. I was surprised at a couple of things. One, at the subtlety of a lot of the stuff going on in the movie. There's a not there's not a lot that's explained, and so you're left to. It's not mystery, but there's a lot that you ask, like, "Hey, wait, did this person really do this, or what was the motivation behind these things?" But there's a lot of subtlety in the storytelling too. There's a lot of moments of just real long pauses. There's camera like two shots between uh, Robert Redford and other characters where he's not saying anything, but the look that he gives is very much uh, saying a lot more than, uh, than words could. The script is very simple. There's not a lot of heavy dialogue in it. And um, it's, it's really just, it's a nice, easygoing baseball movie. It's one that I think anyone who loves baseball should watch. And I think most people who do love baseball have seen it. But I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed Robert Redford's performance. Glenn Close is in that. I enjoyed her performance. Wilford Brimley is in here as well. He plays a crotchety old manager, which is shocker. <laughs> he's not. He's not. He's not yelling about diabetes either. So 
that's something that uh, you can look forward to. But we really enjoyed it. Krisha, she she just went to sleep and she said, man, I love that movie. And I'm like, yeah, me too. So yay, double high fives for that one. That's awesome. Yeah, I haven't seen that in probably three decades, literally. I, I watched it once when I was in elementary school and playing baseball regularly, and I don't think I've seen it as an adult. So I'd be, I'd love to get it on the schedule as well and kind of revisit it, especially with uh, the news that Robert Redford is now retiring yes. from film. So he's he's wrapping it up. I think you, t- you told me before we got on the mics that he was 46 filming The Natural back in 19, what, 80? 84. It's so <laughs> He plays a character, and this is where it just kind of gets really, really complicated from an age standpoint. Early on in the movie, he plays a character who's 18. So he's 18 years old in the first third of the movie. And I'm like, is he really? Because he's not. They can't really. And I'm glad they didn't use somebody else to play a young Roy Hobbs because it wouldn't have got given us the uh, the chance to really experience him as an actor. But it was a little bit tougher sell to see him, quote, 18 years later in the latter parts of the film, knowing that now that he was 46 years old. So he's a, an old man playing a young man and a slightly older young man. And it's just crazy. That is crazy. I watched wild things again for the first time in forever. And it has a similar deal with uh, Denise Richards and Nev Campbell playing high school students. I'm doing air quotes listeners because no one confuses Nev Campbell and Denise Richards for high school students in that movie. <laughs> but hey, whatever, it works. Um, all right, well, let's jump into our bracket picks. Let's uh, figure out who has won themselves a pop figure, because that's all that matters is the winner, the loser. <laughs> shame, 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 shame. Okay, so to recap where we're at, so far, after three quadrants of this competition, Aaron, that's me, I'm sitting at 31 correct out of 45. Patrick is sitting at 29 correct out of 45. So I've got a two-point lead, and we think this might be going down to the wire because neither one of us were really confident about this last quadrant. Um, Okay, so the fourth area here, we started off, we had, let me see who we had here. We had the Coen brothers, we had James Cameron, we had Scorsese, and we had Richard Linkletter. Um, all right. Patrick, how did you do in the first round? Uh, first round, I got five correct. That's out of? Out of eight. Five out of eight. Okay, so that's a good thing for me. <laughs> um, I got seven. No, I got six out of eight correct. So I have one more than you. Uh, what did you miss? Which ones did you pick incorrectly? I missed um, I missed No Country for Old Men. Wow. I picked Fargo. Yeah, I picked Fargo. And then I picked The Big Lebowski between that and Inside Louis Davis. And then I was, this is a heart pick, which became a bizarre pick when I found out what it was. But I picked The Abyss over True Lies. And I was surprised that True Lies... <laughs> really came out on top there but whatever (laughs) yeah so that's one of my two misses as well i picked the abyss and i actually thought that the abyss had a chance to go a lot further i I don't know what happened there i was actually actively campaigning in our polls at this point people were saying that i didn't get to vote that wasn't fair and i was stacking the game and all this stuff and i was like whatever 
I want, I, I love True Lies. True Lies is fun, but like The Abyss is way more fun to talk about, I think. But yeah. no, True Lies ran through this poll somehow, destroying all of my beloved movies like Titanic. I, I don't, I don't know what happened. I, I, this was shocking. Um, so, okay. So five for you, six for me. Second round, then I got two out of four. You? And I only got, I only got one. You only got one. So what did you had? What was the one you got correct? The Departed. Oh, well, there we go. Uh, I had The Departed correct, and I had Titanic correct. That's right. I forgot. So there was a Titanic showdown between Titanic and True Lies. Right on bumps. That went all the way down to the wire to, to midnight voting again. Um, that was that was pretty fun. Those were, those were exciting polls over the course of this month. And then that final matchup, uh, it was between The Departed and No Country for Old Men, which you obviously did not have No Country for Old Men. What did you did you pick The Departed in that one to win? Okay. Yeah, I picked The Departed all the way through. You did, and so you got that correct. That's fantastic. All right, I did not. I uh, had The Big Lebowski as the winner. I thought was gonna come out of this, and it went and lost in the second round. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, I started off this whole thing very strong with my Gladiator pick. To win it all, and I got the, you got two correct, buddy. I did, but you not got two out of four. All right, so total missed in this one. I missed one, two, three. I missed six, so I got nine points. And you? I missed. Well, I, I count the ones I got. I got one, oh, two, fine. three, seven. So yeah. I. You got seven correct. I did. All right, so that puts you at 36 overall, and it puts me at 40 overall, which means when I-, I am the champion, my friend. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. Be in the mail sometime between now and January. <laughs> that is fine. Well, that was a lot of fun. Um, I enjoyed that, and I think we should definitely look at coming back next august with another round of 64 i think we should do that and i'm going to say this what if we do this what if to further inspire a trip to the funko store you pick out a pop of your choice as a result when i come visit in january oh so i'll get my winnings when you're here in person i love that that sounds great that sounds like fun my winnings from the bull mania you know whatever that's that's true well and there there's probably going to be more winnings before then by the way so there we this could be a very we might we might need a big bag <laughs> back the truck up we're coming to the pop store get the u-haul out okay anyway well that was cool cool man well, all right announcements before we get on with this um what's coming down the pipe if you've paid attention to our social media you will have seen graphic that got tweeted out at the end of last week announcing sci-fi september so last year we did a back to school september where we focused on mook mook uh book to movies adaptations and we were going to do that again but we both had some sci-fi films that we were kind of really aching to get covered and we thought oh there's alliteration there so we'll just do sci-fi september what that is going to be is a lineup that includes these films Moon, Primer, Sunshine, Wally, plus our donor pick episode is going to be a Steven Spielberg sci-fi film. There just happened to be five that we haven't covered. So we're going to put those into a poll for our donors to pick from. 
And we will be covering the winner of that in a mini-sode along with Mark O'Connell, an author of a book about Spielberg and science fiction. So we're going to be kind of a dual episode slash interview with Mark. It's going to be a lot of fun, probably much bigger than an actual mini-sode normally is. But hey, it's going to be great content. So we're excited about that. Be sure and subscribe to the podcast. If you have not done so, click that button in iTunes or Google Play or on Spotify, wherever the heck you're listening to us, so that you can make sure that you are notified when a new episode drops and you don't miss a single word. With that being said, Patrick, spoilers are in full effect. This movie is full of twists and turns. If you've somehow made it this far without seeing it, please go watch it first. Don't let us uh, ruin it for you because it's a fun experience to discover what is happening on your own, I think. And that's it. All right. One word takeaways, buddy. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I will start. I will start. Well, I was traveling last week. I was in New Mexico for a few days and I was trying to, as much as I could, catch up on some of the movies that I've been wanting to. And I got through some of them. Uh, This was definitely on the list because, of course, we're covering it. I actually watched it on the plane ride back from from New Mexico. And I remember vividly looking at the guy next to me and wanting to punch him in the face. (laughs) He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. And I was like, why do I hate this guy so much who has not said a word to me? He's just sitting, just crouched down sleeping. And I just want to punch him. And I realized that (laughs) this is my one word takeaway. (laughs) It's angry. Why is everyone so angry in this movie? My goodness. I mean, I don't that there are any happy people that live in Boston, at least not in this Boston that Scorsese depicts. For real, though, the, the tone of this film emits this motivation by everyone from this place of anger, resentment, arrogance, and pride. And, you know, there are movies out there. I, I wanted to make a blanket statement about Scorsese films, but this isn't the case with all of them. Like, he has got a a breadth of of tone in all of his movies, Granted, most of the ones that get a lot of high praise are ones that have this real aggressive nature. Wolf of Wall Street's one of them. Uh, Goodfellas is another. And, and, and rightly so. He's good at what he does, just like there are other directors that are good at what they do. And so they stick with that. And I think that the effect of this puts you as an audience into this world where you can laugh and at the same time kind of sympathize and at the same time relate to the emotion of this world, in particular, the city of Boston. Um, I don't know specifically how I landed on the movie in terms of how I felt about it. I know that I needed to watch something a little bit less abrasive to kind of even out my emotional state because I didn't want to get home and want to, you know, please don't. But the thing that I really pulled away from this is that I don't know what side I'm supposed to be on. And I you know no one's good. Everyone has some kind of end game. And in the end, spoiler alert, they all die. <laughs> it's just like, whatever. Well, maybe with the exception of one, but he probably dies later too. I'm just going to assume he gets shot at some point. Cause that's really what happens to a lot of these guys. So my, my pull from this is stop being angry guys. I mean, if you're a little nicer, a little happier, things could work out a little better, but it really made the movie a lot of fun's not the right word. It really made it entertaining to watch because it put me in a place where I felt angry with them, not as a spectator, but as a participant. And 
when you can do that to me as an audience, particularly someone who doesn't really care for that kind of genre, that's pretty powerful. Yes, for sure. I, that's a great man. That's fantastic. Um, well, my one word takeaway, uh, and this is a film I've seen a dozen times, probably. I, I used to watch this on repeat, unlike you, uh, who needed to kind of wind down. I don't know what that says about me. Maybe I liked being angry. Um, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we're supposed to go to the Navy. <laughs> well, I used to. I use the excuse that um, this has one of my favorite songs and one of my favorite uses of a song during that opening sequence uh, when the Dropkick Murphys kicks in. Um, I'm shipping up to Boston. I used to love that. I would blast that track from my car. and So I would say, oh, I'm just going to rewatch this movie for that song. And then, you know, two and a half hours later, I've watched the whole thing all over again. But for me, the one word is inevitable from that opening sequence that shows Sullivan as a young child. Um, being sucked into Frank Costello's life of crime and his whole just syndicate, his his whole his whole uh, process and his um, operation that he has, this film propels its characters forward, and I think it is serviced by fantastic editing, and it really makes the lengthy runtime unnoticeable for me. I mean, a lot of times in films that approach this length, I can feel it even if it doesn't bother me. And this one, that's not the case. Sullivan and Costigan are on this collision course, and it's marked by a number of incredible close calls along the way. But all the while, we know going in that this cannot possibly end well. It is absolutely destined to have some sort of explosive, tragic finale. It's more about what will that be then whether or not that will be what happens. Um, watching these lives fall apart, and honestly, for what? Like, was any of this worth the cost for anybody? That's a big question I have. But knowing that they can't possibly get out of the situation they're in or change the course that they're on because of the choices that they've made is a nervous, nail-biting experience for me. And it's that way right up to the film's memorable showdown at the end. So yeah. It's like an emotional train wreck because, I mean, you know it's coming. You know that – and I love that you put that they can't get out of the situation because there's nothing in the movie that articulates that at all. There's never any kind of escape necessarily, at least not from that life. So um, I think Inevitable is a great way to sum up the movie. It is inevitably angry. Mark it down. Feeling film stamp. <laughs> okay. So this movie opens with an awesome quote from Frank Costello. He says, I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. And I feel like that really informs so much of this story and his viewpoint on the way of life that he has chosen. And I wondered if you kind of picked up on that at all. Did you did that quote stick out to you as someone who's watching this for the first time? I mean, I know it's coming, so I already knew kind of how that was going to play out for me throughout the story. And I wondered if that was something that you noticed. Did it kind of carry forth with you as you were watching? I've learned from watching movies that have quotes at the very beginning that they're typically important and they do something of value in the story. And as I was watching it, the quote wasn't in the back of my mind, but it came about later on when I was doing my notes and scrubbing through different parts of the movie. And the big thing that 
I pulled from this was a real sense of control that is fought for from pretty much every character in the movie. And there's these overarching themes of gaining it and losing it and trying to hold on to it. And that's the motivation for guys like Billy and Sullivan and Costello in particular. But even even uh, Wahlberg's character, Dingham, Dingham, is that right? I can't remember how to pronounce it. Dingham. Dingham, yeah. So those four individuals, I think, really elicit a real sense of power and control, but all from different places. Costello, I think, really puts on the biggest show of wanting to be in a place where he can exert that kind of control. And there are several moments in the movie where his his words or his lack of words, his presence really motivate that. They really bring that out. Uh, in particular, the very first scene where he's in the soda shop and you can just see what kind of control he has, the way in which he takes care of a young Sullivan by picking out groceries for him, giving him some money, putting a comic book in his in his bag. But you know that he's in charge because everyone stops. Nobody says anything without him saying something first. And it sets up a great character who's intimidating. But it's that control that I think really brings it to him. So there's a word for that, actually, in uh, sexual harassment and sexual abuse kind of trainings where they call it grooming and that is the idea of kind of setting someone up to be more influential uh, to what you're trying to, you know, provide for them. So in this case, that's exactly what Frank is doing to young Sullivan. He's buttering him up in a sense. It's like it's like a guy driving down the street and trying to give candy to kids, you know, to get him into his white van. It's it's awful. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's maybe even worse. I don't know. Um, yeah, for me. This is definitely the way that um, the film starts off with that theme and that idea. I also found it interesting that Frank tells him very early on, he, he really does kind of impose this new ideal that he has on Sullivan. And he says, when you decide to be something, you can be it, which in and of itself, if he stops there, right, that's pretty good advice, I would say. That's not that's not bad. But then he continues and he says, that's what they don't tell you in the church. When I was your age, they would say, we, we can become cops or criminals. Today, what I'm saying to you is this. When you're facing a loaded gun, what's the difference? And boy, does that carry forward, you know, throughout the film all the way to the end. One of the things that I found really noticeable this time around was just the lack of emotion in killing Hmm. I don't know if you noticed this, but yeah, I did. Um, especially there at the beginning, there's an execution scene, and he pops a couple people at the beach, and he says, "Geez, she fell funny." And I'm yeah. just like thinking to myself, like, I, I mean, my mouth dropped because I'm like, "Gosh, the like, just complete disregard for these human beings' lives." Well, it just it says a lot about that life that this is just par for the course this is a tuesday for them yeah and that it's it, it really it it shouldn't be that way but scorsese does a great job of depicting a sense of what is shock for us is what will eventually become normal which i think brings about a little bit of inform, in, information on the ending 
how in some ways it feels kind of abrupt, but at the same time it feels very consistent with the way the rest of the the movie and the violence and the deaths of certain individuals takes place. Yeah, definitely. Well, both the cops and Costello have moles planted in this story. It's a dual situation where they're both, you know, trying to cheat the system and uh, get a leg up by infiltrating each other. So I wondered if you saw any striking similarities between the two or anything that stood out to you as different in the ways that these two kind of snuck into each other's uh, organizations. Well, this is one of those things that I picked up on in terms of some of the contrast, some of the dichotomy. I don't know the right word to be used here, but the expectation that I have is that Billy would be more comfortable in the role as a mole and Sullivan would be more uncomfortable because he is essentially a weird double agent of some kind. And it kind of got turned on its head throughout the movie because it's really Billy who's the uncomfortable one. And Sullivan is the one who, it's almost like he's born and bred for this. Like he fits right into gaining credibility, gaining notoriety, gaining that respect early on. And and the film takes place, at least in the early parts of it, over the course of, it seems like, a couple of years to see Sullivan rising in the ranks, becoming a graduate and then eventually a police detective. And he's gaining all of this notoriety. To me, it would seem like it's not comfortable for him to have to play that role of cop and Billy would be more informed. But I like the fact that we get that that contrast, that we get that unexpectedness. At least it was for me. Yeah, I agree. I like seeing how they handle it differently because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, Costigan is in it in a much more dangerous situation, I think. If Sullivan gets caught, he's going to jail. If Costigan gets caught, he's dead. And he's dead on the spot, right? I mean, for goodness sake, there's that memorable scene that I never forget where he's the first one where he's going off asking him if he's a rat. Of course, there's the wonderful second one where he makes his little rat face that's so iconic. But um, during the first one, when he first meets, when Frank first meets uh, Billy, and they take him into the back room, and he's frisking him, and he just takes his cast, the, the, the helper guy, takes his cast, he just starts banging it on the pool table, like breaking it open, you know, and he's like, oh, I just got to be sure, right? I mean, you realize the gravity of the situation. And I think for me, that's one of the things that stuck out about this is watching Costigan go through that slow deterioration of, you know, it became scarier and scarier and scarier for him. Whereas for Sullivan, it's almost like the opposite. Like it's more of, for him, he's trying to deal with the praise because he's, you know, winning all of these uh, accolades by catching criminals because he's got this inside info. And so he's kind of like rising up the ranks and getting to call some more shots. And, you know, it's like he's, you know, we see him going to buy a new fancy condo and Costigan's like slumming it you know, trying to like get by and you just, it's, it's a really fascinating thing. And it, and it makes me wonder about their motivations, you know, because one of the things that I felt like was Sullivan is 
definitely motivated due to the family. Frank is his family. And that's what he is trying to do. He's trying to live up to these expectations, fulfill this role that he has his whole life. He's kind of been bred for this exact thing since birth. Or not since birth, but since adoption by Costello. Whereas Sullivan, it's a little bit murky. Like, why why would he do this? Is it really just because of a strong idealism? Is that what it begins as? Is that why it's so powerful when we see him start to lose that? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's ambiguous, to say the least, because that opening sequence where we get... Of course, we get the we get this parallel opening sequence of of Billy and and Sullivan both graduating both on similar paths and then we have that in just crazy interrogation by Queen and and, and Diggum where they're essentially testing the waters for both Sullivan and Billy and it's almost like a pass fail so we see we see Colin almost suave cool collective gets through it is able to go toe to toe with Dingham and and then a couple of scenes later we see Billy just getting berated and berated and berated and I think that that those two scenes really set the stage for our character types so for Billy I think he begins to lose that idealism early on when he is completely accosted by these guys particularly by by Wahlberg's character because his family is insulted his name is insulted and but I think it's psychological because I think that what Wahlberg sees in him is the sense of you've got to think like a corrupt cop you've got to think like a bad guy you've got to think like you're nothing in order to play that part and I think that's what it does is you have this idealism that lives in Billy, but it's being replaced and implanted with this sense of corruption that has to be in his world in order to do what he does. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally does. Absolutely agree with that. Um, what do you think about the title? So <laughs> I, I wanted to tell you, I, I did some digging into this because I've always picked up on the Catholic prayer tie-in where we hear it at one of the opening funeral scenes. There's, there's a part of this prayer that says, and may the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. And so I've always thought, okay, well, obviously there's the direct tie-in. Um, it's kind of serving a double purpose of showing how strongly this movie has an Irish Catholic theme to it. And I think it, definitely foreshadows all of the death that we're going to see as well. But it also kind of motivates or shows this motivation that characters have from characters that we don't even meet that are already dead, that are already departed, right? That they're like Costigan, for example, um, he's motivated by his dead father and He's trying to lead a law-abiding life to kind of make up for that. While Costello, he respects Billy because his dead uncle Jackie was one of his best workers back in the day. Um, so there's like that family tie-in there. And these people are already gone, but they're influencing 
the situation of how our characters are treated now. They're already departed. Um, it's just it's fascinating to me, and I I just love the Catholic tie-in because you know Catholics celebrate uh, death in a way. They they continue to talk about people who are dead. It's almost it's okay if you die. Like, it's not entirely the negative that maybe some other religions or non-religious folks may feel because they are still praying and there's still a path for them. They're still, they still believe they have an influence over you once you're dead. Right. So the psychologist in me is reading way too much into all this because that's just what I do. Uh, first of all, I think that when we talk about the departed, definitely not the amount of death, but that death is going to be at the focal point of the movie is, is definitely something there. But when you think about the word departed, the opposite of that is arrival. And so when I think of departed, I think of that as a more relaxed way of saying death. Departed means they're going someplace else. There's an active movement away from something. And within that Catholic faith, particularly in the film, there's a sense of always having that closeness, gone but not forgotten, that kind of thing. And when you have those family ties with people that have gone before you and that will come after you, the movie also maybe unintentionally creates this theme of life going on. And it does go on. Something happens here, but life goes on. This person dies, but life goes on. Someone makes this wow decision, but life goes on. There will always be stadies. <laughs> There will always be people that the stadies go after. There will always be bad guys and good guys and cops and criminals. Life goes on. And so maybe what Scorsese is doing here, and again I'm reaching, is that he's creating a film and, and crafting a story that says this is not really a slice of life, but this is just how things are. And there's nothing exciting or glamorous. It can be shocking, but it's what life is. And as you mentioned earlier, that inevitability of these guys living the lives they do, they can't escape it. They just have to live in it and accept it. So maybe that's kind of what the title is articulating, that these people are gone and life goes on, but they're not necessarily forgotten. That's good. I, I love I love that as well. And I, I just think it's fantastic when there's that much kind of depth to it, right? When you can think about that on top of the layered story that we're already being told just it's the basic plot of a rat trying to catch a rat which is pretty fascinating in and of itself like you don't even need that layer added but you have it and that's part of what scorsese is so good at doing um and then all of his films really well there are a ton of supporting characters in this movie there's a ton of great actors this thing Shockingly to me, Wahlberg was the only one nominated for an award, um, which you're shaking your head, meaning you don't agree with that. Um, I think he's fantastic. I really do. I think he's probably one of his best performances. Um, now, he's playing himself, probably, so it's easy, but like he's he nails this role all the way to the end, I think, perfectly. So I, I understand it. I also understand that as good as Jack Nicholson's role is, that's Frank Costello. Some people have a big problem with the lack of an accent. That is something we may be talking about next week as well. But no no problem for you there? I think that it's less about Wahlberg being the 
being the nomination and more about the fact that he's the only nomination. Because to me, DiCaprio, I think, owns it. I mean, I didn't think I would gravitate towards any particular character in this movie of angry people. And DiCaprio's performance and his fall from idealism to pessimism to crazy to whatever was such a fascinating character arc and there was a real sense of loss when he comes to the end of his life and that can only be done by an actor who you know Scorsese obviously loves him because he's in a ton of his movies and there's a reason for that not only because he's a great period piece actor because <laughs> this is who he is DiCaprio is always I don't know of a lot of of, of things that aren't period pieces that he's that he's in but I think that if I'm going to pick one DiCaprio is going to stand out to me it doesn't take anything away from Wahlberg but I just think that there was a better performance from DiCaprio I, I can't disagree with you at all there I mean I agree I think they're the best but I think it's a lead performance true true yeah um, I was just now thought me. of that yeah and, and part of the problem is that there are so many really big name actors in this film and there's a lot of screen time for all of them. I mean, it's a long film and they, they really do a great job of, you know, giving us parts and pieces of, of all of them. But DiCaprio is the most emotional center of the film. Like he's got the biggest swing and emotional arc. And I think that they all do a fantastic job. I mean, Damon is not a slouch here. People knock on him all the time for some reason. And they, they say things like, well, he's never the best thing in his movies. And I, I did some thinking on this and it's hard because he isn't usually the best thing in his movie, but he's with other great actors and he holds his own and he does a great job here as well. It's just, I think different because he's not the sympathetic character. So yeah. it's a lot easier for us to gravitate towards. And, Leo. And, and this is, that's really interesting because yes, Matt Damon is the guy that we gravitate towards of being kind of the, the sweet, the positive, the, Innocent. There's another movie that you might be interested in. It's along the same lines as Dead Poets Society called School Ties, where he plays he plays a bad guy. He plays the antagonist, and he plays it really, really well. He's also like 12 years old. He is. So it's but it's an all star cast at that point. <laughs> it's I mean, a fantastic movie. I mean, come on. It's it's just it's great. School Ties and Taps back in the day. It's so good. Um, I wanted to go back to talking about Nicholson's lack of accent. I was actually talking to some people last night. We were having dinner with some folks, and they said, what are you covering this week? And I said, The Departed. And they said, oh, that's the one with Jack Nicholson who doesn't talk like a Bostonian. And I said, yes, and I'm glad. And they're like, what, really? And I said, look, this may just be my southern ethnocentrism, but I've heard enough Jack Nicholson that I don't want him to depict another accent other than his Jack Nicholson is because that's who he is. That's what makes him so endearing. So influential, I guess would be the word. So intimidating. Those words are how I would describe Jack Nicholson as he talks. And it's those same, it's that same accent, that same dialect, that same Jack Nicholson esque language and speech that gives him the power in this movie. If you put a Boston accent behind him, it would lose me. I would be more distracted by that. In fact, I was, I've heard, obviously, Wahlberg is being Wahlberg, but Matt Damon and even DiCaprio 
I didn't buy the accents. Thankfully, their performances kind of over overcame those. But I, I'm fine with not having authenticity, authenticity when it comes to particular areas of the country. Just like I'm fine with Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, even though he didn't have a British accent. I'm fine with that because I enjoyed more of the movie and was not taken out of it because, oh, yeah. he doesn't have a British accent. I agree with you in general. <laughs> and I agree with you about Jack Nicholson in this movie. I even agree with you about Kevin Costner because I don't mind it as much and I love Robin Hood. But what I will say is I think that the problem can really occur when the rest of a cast is bought into using an accent and one person doesn't. That's when yeah. the sticking out occurs. So I'm fine with no Boston accents being forced upon people in a Boston film. But if 90% of your cast is talking Boston and one isn't, then yeah. it sticks out like a sore thumb. True. Even if it doesn't bother me, it's noticeable. Absolutely. And yeah. so it's one of those things that I would say, like in a review, I love this movie despite this. Like, I notice this, but I don't care. But I can see how others would consider it a flaw or yeah. a detractor. Yeah. So the, the couple other relationships I want to mention is just the awesome supporting cast here. We talked about Wahlberg a little bit there, but um, Alec Baldwin... He's not in this a lot, not in this a lot, but as LRB, the police chief, he is a hoot. Um, there's this one, there's a couple great scenes. One, he's, they're doing the microprocessor raid with the FBI and the guys are all set up and doing their like high tech stuff. And he just goes up behind one of them and grabs them on the store and says, Patriot Act, Patriot Act. I love it. And he just, I mean, he is, he's so over the top. I mean, it's just hilarious. And then, Honestly, one of the best comedic lines ever. I, and I can't quote the whole thing. I'm going to go as far <laughs> as I can. But he just rattles this out, right? And then bam. He says, I'm going to go have a smoke right now. You want to smoke? You don't smoke? Do you? Right? Who are you? One of the great fitness freaks? Huh? <laughs> go beep yourself, right? And like he just, it's like this one long string of dialogue where he never breaks. But he's he's never letting someone get a word in. And he's like, what, what are you, one of those fitness freaks? Go F yourself. You know, and it's just, it's hilarious. It, it is. is absolutely hilarious. Yeah. And he and Wahlberg, I think in particular, seem to have the most fun. They look like they're having the most fun with Wahlberg their roles. Wahlberg is having a blast. Yes. I, I'm telling you because it's just so nutty over the top. And to, to have that juxtaposed against a more stable character like Costello or even, even Sullivan, makes that even more entertaining. It's it's right. no pun intended, it's the Abbott and Costello type relationship. Oh. <laughs> it's the it, it's that comedic and straight man, but in a more dramatic sense. And I, I absolutely uh, just adored Baldwin's character as Ellerby. I did too. And the other <laughs> Wahlberg when you're saying his line, um when Dingham's he's he's this happens during the microprocessor type stuff too, and he says or no, 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 it happens to, does it? Yeah, it does. And they all screw up, and he goes up to one of the FBI guys, and he's like, who am I? Who are you? I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. <laughs> and I love that line. I've used that line at work, actually, in my life, because it is such a great dig. But the, that's the other thing. His relationship with Queenan is low-key, pretty emotionally powerful, and I think it's a brilliance of Scorsese that he's able to do this with so little, like we don't see their lives much, but you know, you see 
how they work as a lot of times good cop, bad cop. Um, you can see it as mentor mentee in a lot of ways where they're sort of equals. Like he knows he's going to let Dingham go and, and he's a dog, but he also knows that when it absolutely comes push to shove, Dingham's going to listen to him. Um, there's that great freak out scene where they're, they're by the coast area and he's like, get in, you know, what are you, how are we not supposed to arrest you right now? And like, you know, Leo's about to fight. And I, I just think Dingham is such an a-hole, but Martin Sheen is so dignified. And because I've been slowly kind of watching the West Wing recently, it's hard not for me to be like, there's this crazy Mark Wahlberg character. And then there's the president, like, you know, the, and he's got this relationship with. And so I just thought it was, it, it's a amazing casting pairing. I, I'm continually blown away by how perfectly they all fit into their roles. Martin Sheen was a surprise to me. Of course, being my first time to watch this, I didn't really get a full debrief of the, of the cast. What didn't surprise me was that sternness, that sense of solidarity that, that Sheen brings to the table. And how you see him right next to next to Dingham, and it's almost like a, an owner keeping his dog on a leash, and being able to say, "Okay, that's enough. Now it's my turn." And in that scene on the on the pier or underneath the the bridge, I love at the end of that scene, Queen is saying, "Hey, look, we need to get out of here." If people are watching, this isn't, we're not going to be able to sell this. So he's thinking about the big picture and his death, I think is more impactful because of moments like that. When he goes to essentially rescue Billy and he sacrifices himself, it's a huge, huge thing. And again, like most deaths in the movie is very shocking because it's just like, and you're shocked just like I am, just like Billy is. And you're also incredibly sad because you're right. We don't know a lot about his past. We don't know about his family life. We don't know what kind of person he is. We infer based on the little that we get to know him. But we know that he's a man that can be trusted, a man to be listened to, and a man who is in a pretty big leadership position who lets a guy like Dingham do some of his dirty work but isn't afraid to pull him back and say, that's enough. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's you just made a great point. When they die so suddenly too and you have this all-star cast every time you're like <gasps> like that guy died like in this movie, you know, yeah. like it, it's a shock to see Leo die or or Matt Damon die or Martin Sheen like, all of these people should not be dying in any movie, hardly ever. But yet it's all in the same movie. And so it's just this jolt to your brain because you're not used to it. Um okay, so big theme in this movie is Costigan, Costigan, Costigan's whole issue of identity. He says at one point when he is towards the end of this and he's trying to get out, he's done. He says, being a cop's not an identity. I want my identity back. And that really resonated with me because he puts so much trust and so much faith in this system going forward. I mean, it was terrifying to me watching him sign away his life and realizing just how easy it would be to become erased and completely forgotten and how how like that's how it would have to go right because 
not anyone can know about this. It, it has to be that kept that secret in order to work. And so it goes back to that question I had in my opening one word takeaway statement of, is it worth this? Like, is what you're gaining, even if Frank wasn't <laughs> turned out to be an FBI informant and you take down Frank Costello, like, is it worth this layer and this level of cost um, to lose your identity? Because Costigan has, you know, a major freak out about this and rightfully so. I think when I look at his character arc, it's not just him losing his identity, but it's his viewpoint of seeing cops as not being real because he's an informant. Costello is an informant. (laughs) Sullivan is a mole. These people are not who they say they are. And I'm thinking psychologically about how hard that must be to play a part in order to get something going back to that scene with with him and Queenan, he's so frustrated and he's like i want out i want out i want out and Queenan's like okay i'll get you out it may not be today but but i'll do my best and it's that moment that i realized man he has lost any sense of who he was to begin with and it begins at the beginning when he's completely accosted and he's being told you're this your your mom was this your dad i mean he's being judged and almost given personality traits by Dingham in order to put him in this role. So that loss of identity, I I found it less intriguing that I questioned, well, what was his real identity? Because we were never really given that. At least I didn't pick up on it. Maybe you did. But I think it's more about the fact that living the life of a cop in a world like this means you don't know who you are from day to day. He said a number of times, I'm tired of doing this. I'm tired of playing this role in a sense. I'm tired of having to be this guy. And it just beat on him. And I think it's what led to those really great moments with him and the psychiatrist in that he was able to, I mean, he's he's testing her. He's saying, hey, aren't you supposed to tell the truth? You're lying now. And so he, this whole process of him losing his identity is also forcing him to question the reality of everyone and everything around him. Yeah, that's absolutely what it is. And it's, it's just, again, it's what makes this so powerful of a performance to me because I'm feeling for him as I'm going through this entire film. And I'm like, I really want him to come out of this. Okay. And I just have that sense of that train wreck. You said that it's not going to happen. You know, he's not going to get the girl. He's not going to end up getting that medal that he talks about. He's not going to get his identity back. Even if he, quote-unquote, wins and takes down Frank, the likelihood, the odds are so stacked against him. And it just makes me think about what kind of a person you would have to be in what state to want to be willing to put yourself in that situation. And and it makes it hard to watch Queenan and, and Dingham, the way that they treat him. It's like you should be worshiping this guy for what he is doing for you. But I think it goes back to sort of this boot camp mentality where it's breaking him down. It's it's it, You're treating him like crap because you need to, to understand that when he's out on the street, the moment he walks out of your office or that, a meeting away from you, he's back in Frank Costello's world. And this is how he's going to get treated. And you can't have any sense of softness about you. And so I really feel like that's what Dingham is doing. And so it's all in a, a positive you know, reason behind it. Like he's not 
trying to make him feel like trash but in the process you're you're taking a human and you're you're turning their identity into garbage you know and it's for themselves so it's it's rough but it's uh it's compelling what do you think it says about them that they are both interested in the same women or woman rather do you do you see that as uh, just an extra plot point or do you think that there's some interesting stuff to the fact that they would both gravitate toward her i think that it's both i think you have a really weird love triangle because i don't think any of them knew that they were connected with one another but having madeline in the movie having her as part of the story helps to amplify the character traits and the truth the true identity of both billy and sullivan and again i love the fact that we see sullivan who's calm cool and collective as this mole getting kind of his manhood (laughs) questioned with his impotency as well as later on when he's basically called out from that from that tape and you compare that put that next to billy who is quote not the right guy but really is probably the more authentic and honest of the two which you wouldn't expect but you kind of do because as the movie goes on you start empathizing more with billy and there's this really really great moment just after billy has gone off on madeline and he wants the he wants the the prescription and she she hands it to him and he leaves and then they have this kind of verbal shootout and um anyway it's it's a lot of that is one of those it says a lot about him and about her and it creates that relationship that feels both genuine and entertaining to watch and it's less about a love triangle at that point and really more about whose relationship is actually the more honest is it hers and his or hers and sullivan's and uh, and, and i like seeing that yeah i like it a lot too and I, I think that part of it is sullivan is we're watching sullivan treat her like an achievement she's the trophy wife she's the trophy girlfriend she is something he has attained because he has risen to a certain rate. Right. She's no different to me in his world than him getting a condo or him being able to eat at a fancy restaurant or him getting a pretty girlfriend. You know, like it's not about her as a person. Whereas for Costigan, it feels like she becomes someone who he can connect with. And it's not necessarily the most pure relationship starter either because it's it's based on, you know, trauma and her being the only person he can talk to so she's kind of like by default like like the only one he could fall for right other than maybe dingham i guess (laughs) which would be a whole different wow i don't even know if i want to see see that (laughs) (laughs) okay well anyway i agree with what you were saying there and i i like this part of the film and i love vera farmiga i I think she's a wonderful actress Mm -hmm. and I, i really like seeing her in the movie so i'm glad that she's here so Billy's death is really sudden and I'm curious how it felt for you. And I was wondering if you would describe what it was like when you saw this, because when I was watching it this time around, my roommate was in the room watching it with me for his first time. And I 
stopped watching the movie and I turned and I watched him and I got the audible gasp, dropped his cell phone and was like, wait, what moment from him? And I'm just curious, like mentally walk me through what it was like for you watching that elevator open and all of a sudden, boom. Well, that's when I wanted to punch the guy next to me because I was really upset. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) No, it was really shocking. And when you, when you add that there was no music, no buildup with, with any kind of musical kind of hints, it makes it that much more just abrupt. And it, in the big picture of things, it didn't surprise me because it's like anybody can do anything. But it's at this point when you're really invested in a character like Billy and you just see him get popped with no fanfare, no any kind of remorse. Like he is just another body like the two that we saw two hours before. And I'm like, okay, I guess he's expendable because you can, and when you, when you couple that with, uh, with his partner from the Academy, I mean, he gets popped equally in this. It's, it's not like an execution. It's just pop and then pop. They both, it's realistic. Yeah, is what it, it really is. is. Yeah. Like he is given no more weight to his death than the guy that he went to school with, who really doesn't have much of a part in the movie apart from being his connection there. So again, it just completely tells me nobody matters. And if they do, it's only at a local level. Like this is not a national thing that happened. He might be a hero by doing what he did, but in the end, he's just a dead Boston cop. Just continues that cycle of violence that leads to death. He's one of the departed now. He's one of the departed. And it's, it's fantastic scene, like you said, the fact that there's no music, the fact that it's so unexpected and that there is no buildup towards it. You, if anything, you get the sense that, okay, we've, we've won. He's, he's, he's succeeded. And then not only the quick pop and death, but the elevator kind of like closing and getting stuck on his body. Yeah. Cause it can't close. I, I it's, so just, oh, it's so disrespectful. It's so disrespectful. It is so disrespectful. And then you get that other guy saying to to um, Sullivan, that's another powerful just drop of the jaw moment where he's like, what? You didn't think you were the only one. And you realize in that moment, not only that Sullivan has to make a choice, which he does, which is pretty smart, the way that he takes out that guy, but emotionally speaking, processing him processing the fact that, you know, he's this beloved, perfect son of Frank. And no, he's not. He's one of many. He's just another tool. And him having to, you know, it, it's a moment of empathy for me, for for him. Even though it's directly followed by him committing some more murder, I, I for a brief second, I feel like, man, this was a kid ripped out of his home. Like, he grew up, he didn't have to grow up this way. He's a product of his environment, right? And it's sad. It's tragic that this is how his life went. Now, obviously, he made choices along the way, but, I mean... It would be really hard to make choices that are opposite what he did, given his situation, and come out of it alive. Do you think that there is any, and I mean any, like sliver of redemption for him in the end by Sullivan recommending Costigan for the Medal of Merit? Zero. You're giving me a zero. giving you a zero. You're saying no. So you think that that, because at the end, when, when Billy has been killed... You know, and he's giving his brief, he says, and I'm putting in Officer Costigan for the, the Medal of Merit. 
you don't think that there's a sense of like I'm gonna make up for some of the the wrongs I've nope. done by doing this. No, no, you think it's all just part of the. No, game? I think it's all part of his subconscious feeling guilty. I'm like, hey, you know what? <laughs> I did something wrong, and I'm trying to make up for it. It's like the the guy <laughs> last rites on your deathbed, that kind of thing. And it's just Sullivan being Sullivan, because there's nothing from his perspective. There's nothing that can be changed by that. And he's like, you know what? I'm gonna put a little little star in my crown that says I'm gonna do a good deed here. And I think the truth is he feels guilty. He feels guilty about it from what happened, even though he didn't pull the trigger. He's he's a he's an accomplice to it, and he yeah. I think I think he just feels guilty. Interesting. Yeah, I kind of lean that way too. I uh, I like that it's presented to us in a way that I had that question mm-hmm. though of you know maybe maybe and and I think part of it is probably because I want again I want to find a reason to have it so for him. so the problem so, with that is if it had ended there i would have probably changed my mind or been more on the fence about it but the fact that we get the cold shoulder by madeline and then him getting popped by bingham at the end it almost made it more like yeah sullivan will never change so it was almost not proven to me but it was almost just reinforced the fact that sullivan's just going to be a he's just going to be sullivan he's not going to be anything more than who we've seen him be he doesn't have he doesn't have a chance to be redeemed redeemed because we get his ending. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He doesn't. Do you think that Costigan receives any justice based on the way that the ends? Because he gives this envelope of envelope this envelope of info to Madeline, seemingly because she's the only one he can trust, which is really sad. And I'm assuming that it is the information that's clearing him and, and explaining who he really is and who Sullivan is. But then we get Dignam who has treated him like nothing but a jerk. Like we talked about um, being the one that avenges him. And so the way I see it is his name that has been kind of marred is ultimately not erased, but rather remembered for his great sacrifice because of that merit medal. And so do you think that that gives him appropriate justice? Let me back up for a minute and make sure that I got clarification because there's two pieces of mail that she's given. One was directly by him, that envelope that she put his name on. And then there was the tape, right, that she got a couple of weeks later, correct? That okay, is correct. So there's two, there's two yes. pieces of information. One is basically clearing his name with the conversation. And then we get that other envelope that we actually never see her open. She keeps it in her drawer with his name on it. And that's probably what you're referring to. So in the one where he says in yes, two weeks. in two weeks. Yes. And again, the only reason that I know that they're different is that the envelopes are a different color and that one's thicker. And it came in the mail. The second one came in the mail, whereas she already had the first one. So assuming that we're talking about that first one that he says, you know, open it in two weeks. I agree that I I would anticipate that it's about him clearing his name, but I think the fact that he gives it to her, his connection with Madeline his identity to her is the only thing that matters so yes in that regard after his death I'm assuming that at some point she opens it up and he gives her all that information and he is basically saying here's who I am so to her I think he does have redemption and I think he feels redeemed even though he may or may not get a medal he may or may not be remembered by the department or by the city of Boston it's her that his identity matters toward because he's opened up to her. He's given her mm-hmm. as complete of a picture that he can 
without it being a legal type thing. Like he has been the most vulnerable. He is the most vulnerable with her of anybody in the movie. And I think giving her that envelope with potentially his identity is what his, where his redemption comes from ultimately. I do as well. And I think that it, it had to be that because the only way that the ending works is if she has some way known that the only person left that she can go to is Dingham. Like there's clearly a tie because he has gotten into the apartment. It almost feels like Sullivan is coming home expecting her to be there and she's not. So I, I, I believe in my universe <laughs> that she has contacted Dingham because of Costigan's letter because now Costigan died, which is the whole point of sending her this information is in case he dies. And then they are able to set up this revenge together to get him. So um, what do you, what about the baby? Whose baby is I'm going to go out on a limb <laughs> sarcastically and say it's Billy's. Yes, I think it's Billy's too. She has a, a line where she says, um, and here I thought I was the liar to him as she's yeah. angrily shutting the door. And I think that that's what she's talking about because she is. it comes right after the scene where she's showing him the baby's mm-hmm. picture and all that. Fun fact, my roommate is an ultrasound technician. We had to pause the movie and rewind it and pause on the picture of the ultrasound so that he could verify whether or not it was an accurate representation of what they were saying. And I got a lesson on here's exactly what this ultrasound is showing. And, you know, you can't really see much of the baby, but this is where the penis is. And I'm like, no, it's no, it's not. It's blue lines. It looks like static. It's not a freaking baby. Like it's not. And, and so he's like showing me how it all works. And he's reading the numbers on the bottom of the ultrasound. He's like, yeah, I give it a, this is legit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, points for being really yeah, thorough with their sure. props because it actually was a baby boy. Well, there's lots of great moments of tension. And before we move into our emotional connecting points, I wanted to see what stood out to you the most, because this is a thriller. And since we're not going through this like an order of plot, there's so many great scenes. And I just thought, what what do you remember the most coming out of it? Like now removed from it a few days later, what hits you? Well, my connecting point is what I remember the most. So we'll hold off on that. But a a pivotal scene for me is the the sequence where Billy and the gang have to put in their personal information into the envelope. You know, they're writing down all their stuff and he's so frustrated at this point that he has to basically stay in that dump where he could I guess I think he says something like, I don't want to get a tetanus shot after this or something. But there's that moment where I don't remember who it is, maybe it's Mr. French. Probably not, though. He writes down citizens, and he misspells it. And Billy comes back and said, and and, re- and respells it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that kind of shot. That lingering, he's writing. Because there's nothing significant about the word citizens. It's going to come back. And the rest of the movie, I'm like, where is it going to come into play? Is Sullivan going to recognize the handwriting? What's going to happen? And the way it plays out was great. But that whole scene of him, it almost begins showing him being able to stand up to the world in which he's been put in where he's like, here's my, basically here's my information. I'm out. And they're like, no, you need to stick around. He's like, no, I don't. And you can, you can tell, you can tell Costello. I said so. And I'm like, dude, in a world where you could just get shot, this is you not don't smart. do that. <laughs> and I was like, he's going to get popped. He is going to get popped because 
Costello's going to walk in behind him and be like, where do you think you're going? You know, that kind of thing. And (laughs) it's just going to get really, really sketchy. That's good stuff, man. Yeah, movies about internal affairs have always fascinated me for this very reason, because it's this idea of one of your own not trusting you and looking into your history. And I mean, I, I love watching them turn on Sullivan because realistically, like that, what else is going to happen? Like that is a no brainer how it's going to go down. And he, and I love how he's all kind of pompous about it. Like he's upset when, come on, dude, like, what do you expect? You're demanding to see their personal and private information. Um, but a couple of the things that stood out to me the most, one is, the tracking scene where it happens right after the uh, sex show theater um, and Costigan is following Sullivan. And this the, the way that the tension builds in this moment is probably the biggest of the entire film for me. It's, it's kind of the most driven. It's got a little bit of a score behind it and it's got just really great camera work. It's, it's using like fractured mirrors to reflect, show us reflections and to kind of, it, it obscures faces in these these things of steam that come up and we see him getting closer and closer and it's it's part of this whole concept where these two guys are getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to inevitably inevitably like coming together and we think that they're going to come together and then Sullivan ends up you know killing somebody randomly on the street by mistake and then the other one that is the culmination of what i would say is them coming together for me more so even than when they actually meet in person is when Sullivan calls the phone and Costigan picks it up and they sit there in silence and it is the most tense moment just wondering in your brain like what are they going to say what words are going to come out of their mouth and, and nothing happens right and then they do it again and then they start talking and it's like, okay, at this point, just watching the characters go through the realization like that they have reached the point where they can no longer avoid each other. And so, you know what? Screw it. It's time to just address this head on. Let's, and they talk and they interact for the first time like that. And I, I just, oh, that whole, I mean, I'm, I'm seriously on nails during that scene. I, I just love the way that it's filmed. Okay. Connecting points. Uh, let's go ahead and do them then. I think I'm going to go first on this one. All right. So mine is something you brought up a little bit earlier, and that is Costigan talking to Madeline about his feelings. So generally speaking, it's the sequence of him going to meet her for that first time. This scene switches back and forth with one of him as he's with Mr. French and they are paying a visit to this guy that's one of uh, Costello's crew, and they're going to kill him. And he's taking part in this, and we don't get any direct information from this parent. He doesn't say, hey, don't kill me, I have kids. And I love this in the filmmaking, but we know that he has kids because we see toys in the background of the scene. So we realize right up front, like, this is a father of a young child that's being killed. And the way that Costigan is reacting to this is is so negative. He's he's struggling big time to accept his part in these murders that he's witnessing. And simultaneously, he's talking to Madeline, and his hand is 
kind of out there and he's he's telling her about how you know having a steady hand and not having it shake is a talent and so he's he's acting like very very hard in a scene you can tell and he's starting to unravel it's it's becoming more than he can take and so he's going on this rant about cops as well and i think i found it just really interesting because of this is actually probably how he feels at this point in the story things have come to such a head that he no longer has that idealism about the cops that he started this off with i mean he really is frustrated with them and he's asking to take these pain pills because he just wants to shut out the violence and the danger that he lives in every single day he tells her at one point he says i'm going effing nuts i can't be someone else every day going back to that idea of identity and it just makes me gosh it makes me hurt for him because you you see the toll of living a lie and how thinking your identity would lead you to not having one at all and he freaks out and he leaves the office and i love this because he he's like i'm done and the reason he does this is because he just wishes that madeline would be someone he could tell the truth to. And when he tries to, she shuts him down and she doesn't hear him and she doesn't accept him. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, this is my only shot at finding someone that can talk to me about the truth. And he leaves and she chases him down. And at first you think this is just going to be one of those like romantic comedy type movies where it's this sweet love story thing, but she's still angry. Even as she's giving him this prescription, um, and she says, I'm transferring you to another counselor. And his response is, good. So you want to get a cup of coffee. And I just I think it's such a subtle, great, great ending to this whole scene where he's been losing it, unraveling, coming undone. And it's not about the pills. But her chasing after him is a moment where he has now had someone care enough about him to make an effort and to speak in his life. And... The dialogue here is short, but it says so much, and it, it gives him purpose and a reason to continue oh, absolutely. living. Absolutely. It gives him confidence, and I think that begins a sense of hope that we have in his character, knowing that he has to accept the life that he's been given or forced into. And it leads really into my connecting point, which is that conversation that he has with Costello, trying to convince him. This is the second big one where he's trying to convince him that he's not the mole. And the thing that stood out to me is the deliberate confidence that Costigan has to show in front of Costello in trying to convince him why he's not the mole. See, up to this point, I think we've seen him struggle, as you mentioned, with what he's been asked to do, with who he is. And so he's essentially playing this part in front of Costello. And as we've been talking through this whole thing tonight, I'm starting to understand that I feel like this is the moment that he grabs that identity and takes ownership of it, where he's not playing a part, where in this moment, even if it's just for a moment, he is exactly who he says he is. The way he asserts himself, knowing that in any moment, Costello could pop him and end his life, it elevates his acting chops. DiCaprio just kind of went up a notch in that moment. And of course we know he's had a lot of, you know, he's got a lot of nods for nominations, but never got it until the Revenant, which 
you know, I can see why, you know, roles like this and performances like this, you know, feels, feels kind of cheated. But he has to believe what he's saying, even going so far as to say, I could do what you do, but I don't want to be you. And that could be incredibly respectful and insulting at the same time. Because Jack Nicholson can put up that face where he's like, you don't know what he's going to do. You don't know what he's going to say. You don't know what's going to happen. And the tension in that scene, whether intentional or unintentional, gave stakes to the movie and to Costigan as a character. And a part of me figured he wouldn't get killed here. Though, knowing how the movie ends, it makes me question that even now as I'm, I'm talking through it. But at that time, the way the story had played out, I honestly didn't know. Because anything is possible in this world that Scorsese has built for us. Anybody's expendable. They're all just tools, as you mentioned earlier. I love the fact that you called each of these characters essentially to Costello, just tools in the shed. You know, a means to an end. And Costigan could have been that. But he had to go beyond just playing this part. He had to believe in who he was in that moment, even though that really wasn't who he was. He had to be that guy in order to portray that kind of confidence and i was like dude you're a bigger man than me i would i couldn't do that i think that's such a great connecting point because i actually had a question written down to ask you i was gonna say when he does this when he threatens frank for daring to question his loyalty did you find that insane or brilliantly ballsy that's how i was going to word the question or both and it sounds like you you see it as yes you see it as both it, it is to an extent insane insane but it also i ah, mean i love what you say there like that is so on point to say that in that moment for those few seconds for that scene he believes it and that he has to buy it he has to believe it because if he if he's not 100 percent certain in that moment he's dead um and I think that I think he's almost willing and ready at that point too. I think he's he, I think at that point he's made his peace to the where if he you know what if this is how he goes out, he's gonna go out strong and and without being a punk. You know what I mean? And if, if Frank kills him, Frank kills him. I think he knows like there's no way to talk him out of it. So you just gotta be be thorough about it and see what he says and and. Yeah, and it makes for a fantastic cinematic scene. I mean, and Jack Nicholson just—I smell a rat, and oh, it's it's so good, so good. Well, I hope you liked it. I hope you enjoy. Like you said, you didn't necessarily enjoy "quote unquote" it, but um, hope you're glad that we got to cover this one and you got to see it. It's Scorsese at his finest when it comes to these types of movies, for sure. Like I, I think that <laughs> if there's a movie that says get into this part of Scorsese's head, it's The Departed. Yeah. Or maybe Goodfellas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been fun. Um, I've enjoyed it, and um, it's been a great time, as we said, doing the Director Battle Month, and hopefully we'll be able to do this again. So come be a part of our Facebook group. You can find a link to that in the show notes or on the website, or you can just go to facebook.com slash groups slash film and join there so you can be part of the voting the next time this happens or the next time the group votes for anything. Um, you can talk to me. You can find me on social media on Twitter at Feelin' Film Aaron or at Feelin' Film, tweeting from the, the show's account. Um, I would love to communicate and talk further, have conversations about any movies that uh, interest you or specifically about our episodes. We always love 
having dialogue further with listeners for that. How about you, Patrick? Where can people find you? I'm usually floating around uh, Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Best to just at me or tag me in something. I always like getting those notifications that somebody mentioned me, which means they're letting me join the conversation. So if you want me to talk to you about this or any other movie that we've covered or anything else related to film, just uh, shoot me a, a message or give me a tag or something. We've got a lot of stuff happening over this next month. Uh, we've got Minisode number 50, which is the Hunt for Red October. That's our August donor pick that is, is coming your way. Also, Aaron and Don are going to be covering Searching, a new independent film with Minisode 51. And you want to be sure to check that out. It's actually hitting theaters next weekend. And then we have episode 125, which is Moon, a recent watch that I've had the pleasure of uh, participating in, I guess, in the last year to uh, kick off Sci-Fi September. So that's going to be a lot of fun there. There's never been a better time to subscribe and be sure you don't miss a single word. So if you haven't become a patron yet, feel free to. You can be part of the voting, get part of the bonus content and everything else that we provide. And uh, yeah, just keep listening more than anything else. All right. Well, until next time, stay positive and keep feeling filmed.